the National Archives podcast series, A Tourist Guide to Shakespeare's London, presented by David Thomas. This talk was recorded on the 17th of August 2016 at the National Archives, Kew. Before talking about Shakespeare's London, we need to start by just describing when he arrived in London and, and how long he spent there. The records of Shakespeare's early life are almost non-existent. There are records of his baptism in 1564, his license to marry in 1582, the baptism of his daughter Susanna in 83, and that of the twins Judith and Hamlet in 85. Then suddenly in 1592, he's subject to a published attack by the playwright Robert Greene as an upstart crow and one who supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you. Green's referring to his tiger's heart wrapped in a, 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 a player's hide, a clear link to Henry VI, part three, tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide. Clearly Shakespeare had arrived, suddenly arrived on, on the scene, but where had he been? There's nothing known about his activities between the baptism of his children in 1585 and the, his appearance in the world of the London theatres in 1592. Traditionally, this time has been called Shakespeare's lost years, those seven years. Um, Although Professor Honigman said that given the paucity of information, all of his life up to 1595 were probably lost years. We don't know where he was. He could have followed his father into the butchering trade, and there are stories that he acted as he was a butcher, and when he killed a beast, he made a, a fine speech. Um, um, or perhaps he was a schoolmaster in Lancashire. There's some evidence of that. Perhaps he went to Italy, but he probably didn't. Maybe he was chased away from Stratford after an unfortunate incident involving deer poaching. But although he lived in um, London for 20 years, he kept very close contacts with Stratford. When people from Stratford came to London on business, they'd look him up. And his two, two of his brothers, Edmund and Gilbert, followed him to London. Edmund worked as an actor and Gilbert as a haberdasher. When um, neighbours... Yeah. It's worth saying a few things next about the geography and population of London had a population of about 200,000, which was growing rapidly, and it was the fourth largest city in Europe after Constantinople, Paris, and Naples. Its population was very young. There were about 15,000 apprentices. Most Londoners were first-generation immigrants, mostly from elsewhere in England, Wales, and Scotland. They were mostly poor people who, like Shakespeare, had come to London to make their fortunes. But there was a sort of group of down-at-heel aristocrats, gentlemen, younger sons, unmarried daughters, widows, who found it cheaper to live in rented rooms in London than in the country. It was quite a poor city with about 30,000 paupers, and their situation was made much worse because, until 1538, the monasteries provided some sort of welfare help for the poor. With the abolition of the monasteries, this had gone, and it hadn't really been replaced until the end of Elizabeth's reign. There was also a population of about 7,000 immigrants from Europe, many of whom had come to escape religious persecution, but others moved to London to make a living, and, and in some cases to work in the tourist trade. This was the first period in which Londoners are called Cockneys, and it was used as a, as a term to describe people born within the sound of Bow Bells, St. Mary of Bow. In 1600, Samuel Rowlands talk of, talked of Bow Bell Cockneys, it was originally an unflattering term for the weak and effete city dwellers in contrast with the robust and upright English yeoman who lived in the country. Fines Morrison, who came from Lincolnshire, talked about people within the sound of Bow Bell. 
who were called cockneys and eaters of buttered toast. The famous bell of St Mary Le Bay, which is rung every night to sound the curfew, could be heard as far away as Hackney Marshes, so being a cockney is a pretty wide area. London exists and because of and is defined by its river. Um, London Bridge, which features a lot in Shakespeare's London, was the first bridge um, west, of the, west of the estuary, so there's no river crossing below London. And then the next river crossing is, is at Kingston, so London Bridge is absolutely crucial. And as well as crossing the bridge, there was, there was a lot of water boat services, watermen, who would take you across the river, they were like water taxis, and also down River Gravesend where you could get a boat to, to Calais. People sometimes have asked me why there is no great central square like Tiananmen Square in Beijing or Tahrir Square in Cairo or Red Square in Moscow. And this is because London in Shakespeare's day and today is really, is really three cities. So you've got the city of London, which stretches from the tower up to the then you have the West End, and that's the kind of business uh, commercial center. You've got the West End, which is, is the core of the White House Palace. You've got another palace in the Roman Room, and the aristocrats And then over the other side of the river, you've got Southwark, the theatres, and King Britain various brothels and other forms of entertainment. So it's, it really is three cities. The city ha was the heart of London, and people had originally lived, the kings and queens had originally lived in the tower. But this was old-fashioned and uncomfortable, so they moved to the Palace of Westminster, but this burnt down in, in 1512. And Henry VIII was very short of palace accommodation, so he built a new palace at Blackfriars, called Bridewell. That's allegedly the surviving gate of, Black of Bridewell Palace. I don't believe it is, but that's what they say in the book. Um, and this is the location. So you've got the fleet here in the centre, and then you've got Blackfriars there, but then that's the new Bridewell Palace that built. Um, and he continued to use that for a bit. And then... Um, Cardinal Woolley, Wolsey fell from power and he took over Cardinal Wolsey's palace, Whitehall Palace, as his main London accommodation. But he also built a new palace, St. James's Palace, on the site of a leper hospital in St. James's Park. The city was full of churches and monastic buildings, but when the monasteries were dissolved, aristocrats took them over for their residences. So the Earls of Oxford got a property which had belonged to the Priory of Tortington and renamed it Oxford Place. By the reign of Queen Elizabeth, by Shakespeare's time, the court was well established in Whitehall, and so the aristocracy moved from the city west to build large houses along the Strand. In Shakespeare's day, there were very few aristocrats left in, in the city. The most famous one was the, the Duke of Norfolk and his son, the Earl of Suffolk, who owned, lived in the Charter House at the northeast corner of the city until 1611. So by Shakespeare's time, was... The city was the home of merchants, tradesmen, and craftsmen, the commercial capital. Shakespeare's London really was a paradoxical place. On the one side, it really was a savage medieval city. I won't go into too many details, as we've just had your lunch. But on the other, it was a modern city with all the facilities, opportunities, and problems of the modern world. 
So the medieval aspects, it was a place ravaged by appalling outbreaks of disease, particularly the plague. This is spread by fleas, which feed on infected rats and then go on to bite humans. It occurs in years with warm springs when the fleas can breed and then you get a lot of fleas. And it's only a problem between April and October when the fleas are active. It occurred about every 10 years and had a devastating effect on London. In 1563, between a quarter and a third of London's population was killed. The court and many citizens fled to the country to avoid the disease. Theatres and places of public entertainment were closed. According to Thomas Decker, in the plague of 1603, there wasn't a good horse in Smithfield or a coach to be set eyes on because they were all tired to run away. Decker said the plague had a preeminence among other diseases, none being able to match it for violence, strength, uncertainty, subtlety, catching, universality and desolation. He said it's called the sickness, as if it were the only sickness, or the sickness of sickness indeed. The narrow streets and wooden buildings meant that London was susceptible to fire. The old palace of Westminster, as I said, burnt down in 1512. In 1561, St Paul's Cathedral was struck by lightning and the steeple and roof of the cathedral caught fire. And a, a river of molten lead flowed down to the Thames. Eventually, the, the roof was restored, and although, although funds were raised to replace the spire, it never was. London was very keen on shows involving cruelty to animals. Henry VIII exported cockfighting and built an elaborate cockpit in Whitehall with three tiers of seating. King James was also a big, a big fan of cruel sports, and fights were headed for him on his progress around the country. There were um, bear pits in Stratford throughout this period. They had lions, black bears, and polar bears, which were baited by dogs. Bear biting was a, a royal monopoly, and from 1604, the theatrical entrepreneurs Edward Alain and his father-in-law, Philip Henslow, bought the office of Master of the Games of Bears, Bulls and Dogs. The Sackerson family was the leading breeder of bears, and the most famous bear of the late 16th century was called Sackerson. It's mentioned in The Merry Wise of Windsor, when Slender is trying to impress Anne Page. I've seen Sackerson loose 20 times and have taken him by the chain. According to Sir Thomas More, many people were attending a bear baiting at Beverley at the time of Evensong, when the church fell down and killed several people inside. And so, said he, you see what it is to be at Evensong when you should be at the bear baiting. It's also a place where brutal public ex executions were commonplace. Heretics were burnt at Smithfield, criminals were hanged or burned at Tyburn, and aristocrats, usually traitors, were beheaded at Tower Hill. The, there were also the heads. The heads of traitors were put on poles at the south end of London Bridge as an awful warning to potential rebels. They were put on the south side because normally rebels came across from Kent to attack London. The Duke of Stettin counted 30 heads there in 1602. Sometimes the warning had the opposite effect. In 1535, John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester, was beheaded and his head placed on the bridge. Then things began to go wrong. The head showed no sign of decaying, and every day became fresher and fresher, so that in life he never looked so well. It became an object of pilgrimage for thousands and eventually had to be taken down at night and thrown in the river. So we can see Shakespeare's London a place of disease, danger, and brutality, but also of superstition. Londoners had a strange sense of history. In the 12th century, Geoffrey Monmouth wrote a wholly fictional history of Britain. He was denounced as a fraud in his lifetime. Geraldus Cambrensis, his contemporary, 
tells the story of a man who was beset by demons, and he could only be cured by placing a copy of St John's Gospel on his chest. But if a copy of Geoffrey of Monmouth's history was put on his chest, thousands more demons came along and redoubled their fury. Many of Geoffrey's stories were part of the mental furniture of Londoners. For example, foreigners were constantly told that the tower was built by Julius Caesar. In Shakespeare's Richard II, the Queen says, this is the way the King will come. This is the way to Julius Caesar's ill-erected tower. Geoffrey also told the story of how one of the Trojans who came to England, this is Geoffrey's story, they didn't, um, he was called Corineus, fought with a giant called Gogmagog and threw him into the sea. Londoners were very keen on giants. Statues of Gogmagog and Corineus greeted Queen Elizabeth on her departure from the city after her coronation. There was a tibia of a giant in St Mary Aldenbury, and a large fir pole was kept in a house in Basing Lane. This pole, which was nearly 40 foot long, was believed to have belonged to a giant called Gerard, who used to live there. Perhaps the um, most famous example of the superstition of people in Shakespeare's day occurred at the trial of Anne Turner for the poisoning of Sir Thomas Overbury. Much of the case turned on papers found in the room of Simon Foreman, the astrologer. Here's one. These included a spell to conjure the devil. This had to be read out in court. But the judge, Lord Cook, said that he hoped that by reading it out, they wouldn't cause Satan to appear. While the fatal text was being read, there was a great cracking sound from the staging where the audience was sitting, and total panic broke out in the courtroom. In, in terms of crime and public safety, I think London was pretty much where New New York was 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, people in New York liked to tell people how terribly dangerous their city was. And when I visited it in those days, I was faintly disappointed that I hadn't been mugged or murdered because it was such a, a violent place. And there's a great volume of literature developed in London in this period called coney-catching literature. Some of these were written by writers who also had literary aspirations. Robert Greene, and we've heard about being rude about Shakespeare, and Thomas Decker, a well-known playwright. Coney's were, were tame rabbits bred for the table, um, but in Shakespeare's day, there were young men up from the country ready to be skinned alive. The essence of Coney catching is described by, by Green. People called takers-up haunted the fashionable resorts of St Paul's or the Royal Exchange. If they saw a plain country fellow, well and clearly apparelled, either in a coat of homespun, or a freeze, as the season requires, and with a side pouch at his side, there is a coney, says one. The next job is to get his money off him. One technique was called cross-biting. A pretty woman would ask the coney to go with her to a tavern for a drink. After the coney had become quietly sozzled, a large, angry man with a large beard would come in, pull out his dagger, and ask what on earth the chap was doing having a drink with his wife so that the coney then had to pay a large sum to avoid having his throat cut. And these coney catchers were associated with a whole tribe of false beggars and dodgy street entertainers. The counterfeit cranks, who pretended to have the falling sickness, epilepsy, so they'd suck some soap, chew some soap up, and then prick their gums with a, a, a knife or a needle or something, so they could produce bloody foam out of their mouths. Try it, it's ever so... <laughs> <laughs> And then there were Abraham men who pretended to have been in Bedlam, <coughs> the Bethlehem Hospital for the Insane. And the runtings of King Edgar in King Lear sound like the authentic voice of an Abraham man. 
Who gives anything to poor Tom, whom the foul fiend has led through fire and through flame, through ford and through whirlpool? Blood as the Pigs were very popular for street entertainers. And Reginald Scott tells this story of, of a, what they would do is they'd wear a metal plate under their shirt and then put, they'd put a pig's bladder full of blood on top of it and then they'd put their shirt on. And they'd do this performance where somebody would stab them and it would go through the bladder and all this <coughs> blood would pour out and of course the metal plate would protect them from being killed. So Reginald Scott tells this story of a guy who um, did this. He, he did a performance. Somebody came up and stabbed him and then his apprentice took the money from the appreciative crowd, and then he went up to St Paul's churchyard where he died. Scott says, this occurred, this which misfortune fell upon him through his own folly, as being then drunken, and having forgotten his plate, which he should have had for his defence. <laughs> Originally, coney-catching pamphlets had a serious purpose. Thomas Harmon, who wrote in 1566, was a rather sickly JP from Crayford in Kent, near Dartford. As he was too well to go out, he amused himself by talking to the people who came begging at his door. He said he used a combination of fair words, money and good cheer, and was able to learn their secrets. He and others of his generation wrote to warn visitors and as parables of good and evil. By the time Shakespeare was in London, they were being written as entertainments. Thomas Decker said they were written to shorten the lives of long winter's nights that lie watching the dark for us. The titles of the pamphlets alone are a joy. Robert Greene wrote three parts of coney catching and a dispute between a he coney catcher and a she coney catcher. And Thomas Decker wrote The Bellman of London and Lantern and Candlelight. And then I've got myself. Reginald Scott wrote The Discovery of Witchcraft, wherein the lewd dealing of witches and witchmongers is notably detected in 16 books whereunto is added a treatise upon the nature and substance of spirits and devils. This isn't what it appears to be. Scott didn't believe in magic or witchcraft. It's an entertaining look at the belief in witchcraft and magic. And also there's a great section, well worth reading, showing how street conjurers perform their tricks. So if you want to get a job as a street conjurer, this is where to start. It's widely believed that, that Scott's book was used as the basis for some of the stuff in, in Macbeth. But I think it, such works really show the vigour of language and literary imagination at that time. It, it wasn't just Shakespeare who was writing this sort of stuff, it was many others. But was London as dangerous as Harmon, Green and Decker liked to pretend? Well, it's hard to say. The streets of London were well lit. Householders were required to place hanging lanterns outside their houses or inside their shop windows between 6pm and 8pm every night. In addition, each parish had to provide watchmen who patrolled the streets with javelins, bills and halberds at night. Their quality seems to have varied. Um, Shakespeare talked about the pompous and incompetent dogbury of the watch in Much Ado About Nothing. Lord Burley had a real-life Dogbury experience when he was travelling home to Theobald's one night. He saw groups of men standing outside alehouses with long staves. At first he thought they were sheltering from the rain or having a drink, but then he realised that they were members of the watch. He stopped and asked them what they were doing and was told that they were supposed to arrest three young men. Burley asked them how they would recognise the men. Marry, said they, one of the parties has a crooked nose. Have you, quoth I, no other mark? No, said they. Burley sent for the head of the watch and told them that having them stand around in groups, 
and having no better information than to look for three men, one of whom had a hooked nose, was unlikely to be successful. But despite his uh, Burley's concerns, the general impression of foreign visitors to London was that it was a fairly safe place. Horatio Bassino, who visited from Venice, said that one can really go about by night unarmed and purse in hand. James Howell, who was an Englishman who'd been living in Paris, talked of the excellent nocturnal government of our city of London, where one may pass and repass securely all the hours of the night if he gives good words to the watch. Of course, there was petty crime, particularly pickpocketing, and this could happen wherever crowds had gathered. Um, in 1611, John Selman dressed up in smart clothes and went to the Christmas celebration, the Christmas service, in St. James's Palace, where, where the king was present. And, uh, sorry, in Whitehall Palace, where the king was present, and he, he picked somebody's pocket. So he was arrested and hanged. But as he's hanging, several people in their crowds had their pockets picked as well. <laughs> um, we mentioned Bassino, who was chaplain to the Venetian ambassador, but was also a keen tourist. And it reminds us just how London had become a tourist destination by Shakespeare's day. By the reign of James I, the London season was developing. This began in the autumn, reached its climax at Christmas, and was over by June. Gentlemen came to London to buy land, borrow money, find a wife, or to take part in a court case. But mostly they came to escape the unutterable tedium of life in the country. In 1605, John Wynne of Gwydir wrote, I am resolved to spend the greatest part of my life for the winter and spring quarter about London. If you've ever seen Gwydir Castle, which is near Llanroost in North Wales, you'll see it's just totally remote. There's nothing to do. My sister lives a few miles from there, and she's always coming up to London for entertainment, so nothing's changed. The, the season begins with a bang on Lord Mayor's Day uh, on the 29th of October. Then the fleet bringing the wine from Bordeaux arrives in December. And then there was Christmas and 12 days of feastings and theatrical performance up to Twelfth Night. As the tourist trade began to develop, so facilities for visitors began to improve. There were lots of places to drink and eat. At the bottom were alehouses, which were frankly a bit rough. Above these were taverns and also ordinaries, which were kind of restaurants. And these varied in quality from dangerous dives to respectable places. Above these were inns, which provided accommodation and food. And Fines Morrison describes what will happen. I'll read it in, uh, in case you ever visit a Tudor inn. When you arrive, a servant will take your horse and feed it. A second will show you to your room and light a fire. A third servant will remove your boots and clean them. Finally, the host will come along and ask about dinner. You could either eat with a company downstairs, which is the cheaper option, or you could eat in the room. You simply tell the host what you wanted, and it would be prepared for you. As tourism began to develop, save facilities began to be provided for visitors from overseas. In 1562, Alessandro Magno, a Venetian, stayed at the Ball Inn, run by an Italian, Master Claudio. And in 1599, Thomas Platter, a Swiss medical student, stayed at the French Lily in Mark Lane, run by Monsieur Brion. Shakespeare seems to have been a fan of another Italian-run establishment, the Elephant, or Oliphant. In Twelfth Night, Antonio says, In the south suburbs that the Elephant is best to lodge, I will bespeak our diet. This is a rare example of Tudor product placement. Also, Shakespeare makes an oblique reference to the boar's head in Henry VI, Part II, when Prince Hal was asked about Falstaff. 
does the old boar feed in the old frank? To which Bardolf replied, at the old place, my lord, in East Cheap. This was a bit of poetic license because there was a boar's head in East Cheap in Shakespeare's day, but that wasn't in Henry IV's time. There are also theatrical pubs. The Cardinal's Hat Pub in Cardinal's Hat Alley, which is next to the present Globe Theatre, was visited by Edward Alain, the theatrical impresario in 1617, and John Taylor, the poet, also went there with some players a little later. The mermaid became a famous haunt for theatrical types, and its landlord, William Johnson, was a trustee for Shakespeare's mortgage when he bought a property in Blackfriars. In Bartholomew Fair by Johnson, Mr Littlewit, who has written the play for puppets, talks disparagingly of the canary-drinking wits who haunt, the three, who haunt the three cranes, mitre and mermaid. Visitors mostly seemed happy about their accommodation. Thomas Platter said that there are a great many inns, taverns and beer gardens scattered about the city where much amusement may, may be had with eating, drinking, fiddling and the rest, as for instance in our hostelry, which was visited by players almost daily. Visitors were generally happy with the food on offer. Hensner and others remarked that the English were very fond of meat, which they roasted to perfection. Generally three meals were eaten every day, a very small breakfast of bread and a little meat. The main meal was at midday and supper at 6pm. Increasingly vegetables were becoming fashionable. They were grown all round London. The dung and dirt from London streets was taken to the suburbs where it was buried in holes left by gravel digging and used to grow food. All foreigners remarked on the English addiction to sugar and tobacco. Sugar was hugely popular with the upper classes um, and it was used in all sorts of ways to sweeten drinks, make little sweets, used to make lozenges to ease coughs. And there was a fashion for sweet things at the end of meals, fantastic confections made of sugar or fruits preserved in syrup. As a result, they all had dreadful teeth, and Queen Elizabeth's teeth were notoriously black and probably loose. Foreign visitors were also shocked at the English addiction to tobacco. This had come to the country in the 16th century, and it was believed that Sir Walter Raleigh inspired its popularity. Foreign visitors... King James didn't like Sir Walter Raleigh, who, and he also hated tobacco smoke, and wrote a treatise, A Counterblast to Tobacco, in which he said smoking was a custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, dangerous to the lungs, and in the black stinking fume thereof, nearest resembling that the horrible Stygian smoke of the pit that is bottomless. Perhaps surprisingly, London had a supply of clean drinkable water, brought by the great conduit which was established in, 1570, in 1272 and brought water from Tyburn to Cheapside. Lamb's Conduit, which is obviously remembered by Lamb's Conduit Street, brought water from Hoburn to near what is now Farringdon Station. People were gradually getting piped water in their houses. The royal palaces all had supplies. And in 1582, a German, Peter Morris, built pumps to extract water from the Thames and supply it through pipes to people's households. But the trouble was Thames water was unpleasant and if you wash your clothes and bed linen in it, they smelt of mud. So, so it wasn't so successful. But then in 1613, the new river was opened. This is this remarkable uh, man-made canal, very quite shallow canal, which brings water from springs at Amwell in Hertfordshire 
all the way to Islington, and from there it was taken in pipes to people's houses. It was built with, with royal backing, and was absolutely extraordinary. The, there is a new river footpath now. You can walk from the River Lee all along the river to, um, to Islington. You see some remarkable sights. <laughs> On the whole, people drank beer, which had the advantage of being sterile, because the malt used to make beer obviously has to be boiled, and then hops are vaguely antiseptic as well. Um, wealthier households would have their own brew houses. Beer's a natural product relying on the action of yeast on the malt, so it's con converting the sugars into carbon dioxide and alcohol. So it was affected by the weather, and in the winter it was very cold, so the yeast wouldn't really do very well. And in the summer it was too hot, so it would rapidly become sour. So the best times to buy beer were March and October. Those were the two great times. I think that's why the Germans have an Oktoberfest, but... Um, most foreign visitors talk about the English taste of beer. Paul Hensner said, The general drink is beer, which is prepared from barley and is ex excellently well tasted, but strong and what soon fuddles. As Alessandro Magno said, that beer was healthy but sickening to taste. It's cloudy like a horse's urine and has husks on top. So the, the growth of tourism led to the development of tourist sites. It's recognised by Louis Grenade in 1578 that the must-see sites in London were the Tower, London Bridge, St Paul's and the Royal Exchange. The Tower was famous as a royal palace and a prison, but also housed a zoo. In 1592, Joseph Rathgeb, secretary to the Frederick Duke of Württemberg, visited the Tower. He was shown six lions and lionesses, a lean, ugly wolf, which was the only one in England. Hensner, who visited four years later, saw the wolf, as well as three lionesses, a large lion called Edward VI, a tiger, a lynx, a porcupine, and an eagle. Visiting the tower was terribly well regulated. It was open from sunrise to 11, closed at lunch for two hours, and then reopened at one o'clock, closing at five. It was also very expensive, um, since people were expected to tip lavishly. Thomas Platter, who said he had to pay tips to eight separate guides, which came to a total of £1.04. shillings. I'm not inclined to believe him, because this is equivalent for about 12 weeks' wages for a poor labourer. Plath is always going on about tipping. When he visited Hampton Court, he had to pay a gratuity to a guide who showed him round at first. Then he was showed round the gardens by a gardener, who also needed a tip. Finally, the wife and daughter of the governor showed him the rest of the palace, and he gave them a present before he left. St Paul's was the largest building in, building in London and one of the largest in the world. Twice the height of the White Tower, its spire could be seen from 25 miles away. And it played a really important part in the life of the nation. After the Armada was defeated, there was a big service celebrating the defeat and the banners of the captured Spanish ships were hung on the, the walls of the cathedral. The problem with St Paul's was that it was and is on a direct line from, if you think about it, if you go down Fleet Street, and then up to St Paul's, there's a direct line from there along to Cheapside down to Poultry, and that's the main thoroughfare in London. But St Paul's had doors at both ends, so instead of walking around in the rain, people would walk straight through the cathedral. And they would stop and chat. The nave became known as Paul's Walk, and is a place where servants are hired, lawyers met their clients, and deals are done. 
In Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Sir John Falstaff said he'd hired Bardolph in St Paul's. Even out-of-work clergymen offered themselves for hire in the North Isle. Hiring servants in St Paul's wasn't a good idea. There was a saying in London that you shouldn't make a choice of three things in three places. Of a wife in Westminster, of a horse in Smithfield, and of a servant in St Paul's. The um, London authorities tried to clamp down on the behaviour of people in the cathedral. A 1554 proclamation by the mayor said, Now of late years, many of the inhabitants of this city of London have, and yet do, commonly use and accustom themselves very unseemly and irreverently, the more is the pity, to make the common carriage of great vessels full of ale and beer, great baskets full of bread, fish, fruit and other things, bundles of stuff and other gross wares through the Cathedral Church of St Paul within the said city of London, and some in leading horses, mules or other beasts through the same, unreverently to the great dishonour and displeasure of Almighty God and the great grief also in defence of all good and well-disposed persons. You can see why Wren rebuilt it, when Wren rebuilt it, why he didn't put a door at the other end. Next, Paul's Cross. Outside St Paul's was Paul's Cross, where every Sunday a sermon was preached by one of the leading clerics of the realm. The Lord Mayor and Aldman sat in the sermon house to listen, and large crowds, up to 2,000 people, would gather. Significant sermons were preached on Gunpowder Day, that's the 5th of November, if you've forgotten, and on the anniversary of the accession of the monarch. Very strange things happened. In 1521, Cardinal Wolsey and the ambassadors of the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor sat and listened to John Fisher preach a sermon against Martin Luther. Nine years later, Wolsey would die in disgrace, and five years after that, Fisher would be beheaded outside the tower. There's a very good website. It's called Virtual, Sim Virtual Paul's Cross, and it's an attempt to recreate a three-dimensional model of St. Paul's Cross, but also to recreate the soundscape. So you have John Donne giving the 1622 sermon, Gunpowder Day sermon, and the sounds of dogs barking and gulls, whatever gulls, noise gulls make, and so on. It's well worth having a look at. There are other sites, Westminster Abbey, St. James's Palace, Whitehall Palace, the Eleanor Crosses in Cheapside, and at the top of Whitehall. And a popular day out was to go down the river to visit Greenwich Palace and see Sir Francis Drake's Golden Hind, which was beached at, Dre at Deptford. Sadly, much of the boat had been stolen by souvenir hunters. Trips outside London were also popular. Thomas Platter and his friends hired a coach which took them to Hampton Court and Windsor. Then the next day they went to Oxford and on to Woodstock. Shopping was as popular in Shakespeare's day as it is now. Traditionally, the most famous shopping street was Cheapside. And you can see the shops in the back of this, this picture of the coronation procession of Edward VI are, are the famous Goldsmiths Row, which was described by John Stowe as the most beautiful frame of fair houses and shops that be within the wall of London or elsewhere in England. The same was built by Thomas Wood Goldsmith, one of the sheriffs of London, in the year 1491. It containeth in number ten fair dwelling houses and fourteen shops, all within one frame, uniformly built four storeys high, beautified towards the street with the goldsmith's arms and the likeness of woodmen, in memory of his name, riding on monstrous beasts, all of which is cast in lead, richly painted over in gilt. The whole area was really the goldsmith's quarter. There was a rich international trade in gold, silver, emeralds from the Spanish colonies in America, 
moonstones and sapphires from Sri Lanka, rubies and diamonds from India, and even turquoises from Afghanistan and malachite from Russia. But because there were so many visitors from the country and overseas, there was a lot of wealth. And this allowed the development of new retail outlets. In 1566, Sir Thomas Gresham began to build the Royal Exchange, a major shopping mall and business centre. It's rather like the current Victorian Royal Exchange, which you can go and see if you want. It was the central courtyard, which you can see, was where merchants from all over the world met to do business twice a day. The shops provided a wide range of goods. That were, there were haberdashers, mercers who provided fabrics, tailors, leather sellers, vintners, each one decorated with the sign of an animal. The Royal Exchange got off to a rocky start. Queen Elizabeth was due to visit in 1571 to open it, and Gresham hadn't managed to let enough shops, and he had to scurry around to fill all the vacant lots. He was also displeased because he'd built the Royal Exchange as a kind of memorial to himself. He didn't have any children. But the Queen announced that it was going to be known as the Royal Exchange. Um, as I've mentioned, the court and the aristocracy began to move west in Elizabeth's time. And so in early in James I's reign, Sir Robert Cecil, the son of Lord Burley, decided to open a new shopping mall on the Strand. The design was very similar to the Royal Exchange and was opened by King James, Queen Anne and the Princes who were entertained by, to a play by Ben Johnson with sets by Inigo Jones. It was given the rather un-euphonious name of Britain's Bourse. Apart from Cheapside and the two exchanges, there were many other shops and markets in London. But don't get fooled. It's very easy to do this. Many streets in London have the names of the shops which occupied them in the Middle Ages. But by Shakespeare's day, most of them had moved away. So by Shakespeare's day, the poulterers were no longer in poultry, the vintners were no longer in the vintry, the ironmongers had gone from Ironmonger Street, and the hosiers weren't to be found in Hosier Lane. And while there was a baker's in Pudding Lane, the name Pudding referred to the stomachs and other entrails of pigs. According to Stowe, the butchers of Eastcheap have their scalding house for hogs there, and their puddings with other filth of beasts avoided down that way to their dung boats on the Thames. The boar's head, favoured by Falstaff, may well have been surrounded by shops selling rear of boar's heads. So Shakespeare's London had fresh water, tourism, a great retail experience. But it had some of the problems of modern big cities, notably traffic congestion. This had begun to get worse during the reign of Elizabeth, when a growing population put pressure on the narrow medieval streets. By the late 16th century, it was fashionable for the better off to travel by coach. John Stowe expresses clearly when he said that, but now of late years, the use of coaches brought out of Germany is taken up and made so common as there is neither distinction of time nor difference of person observed. For the world runs on wheels with many people whose parents were glad to go on foot. But the problem was that the streets were too narrow. The cart drivers wouldn't make way for each other if they'd met head on and they felt entitled to park wherever they wanted. According to Stowe, the coach and rides behind the horse's tails, lasheth them and looketh not behind him. The drayman sitteth and sleepeth on his dray and letteth his horse lead him home. The, court, the carts could be noisy, particularly if their wheels were covered with an iron rim. There were particular problems because London Bridge was very narrow, so you get congestion at either end of the bridge, causing tailbacks. The Common Council of London tried hard to improve things, 
um, carts were forbidden from coming into the city if they had iron-bound wheels. They had to park in specific places and weren't allowed to speed. This was unsuccessful, and in 1617, further rules were introduced. More parking places were provided for carts, and a one-way system was introduced around the north end of the bridge. These changes weren't successful. In 1618, King James complained about the behaviour of carters and their failure to give way to the coaches of the gentry. So apart from traffic parking meters, which they didn't have, the traffic arrangements were pretty similar in Tudor London than what they are now. The, um, the alternative to using the streets to get about was to use the river. And there were um, about 3,000 watermen who run these, run these water taxis called wherries. Most of them lived in Southwark. They were either one man or two men operated um, and provided a service up and down and across the river and were very popular with tourists. Apart from traffic pollution, and here's another picture of the river and a couple of wherries. Apart from traffic pollution, most cities serve, <laughs> suffer from problems of dirt and, and dust. In fact, London had very good arrangements for cleaning itself. Householders dumped their rubbish in the streets, but it was collected by dung carts three times a week. And also householders were responsible for sweeping up the rubbish into heaps to be collected by the raker, and then for washing the streets with ten buckets of water three times a week. The one big change in, in this period, which was adding greatly to the pollution in London, was that at this date, people were moving from the use of, coal, of wood fires to coal fires. Coal was being shipped in from the northeast, and that was adding great smoke and, and other pollution, for which London later became much, much well known. Shakespeare's London is, of course, famous for the theatres, of which there were a number. When he came to London, the main theatrical area was... Shoreditch in the northeast with two theatres, the Theatre and the Curtain. The Burbage family who leased the site of the Curtain fell out with our landlord, who with the help of friends and fellow actors moved the theatre to the South Bank where it was rebuilt as the Globe. The Southwark rapidly became the entertainment centre of London with the Globe, Swan and Rose theatres as well as the Bear Baiting Arena. These were all large outdoor theatres suitable for playing in the summer months but two smaller theatres were developed north of the river, the Blackfriars and the Whitefriars. And these were used for, by Shakespeare's company. The Blackfriars was used by Shakespeare's company, the King's Men. They played five months of the year in the Globe, May to September, and seven months in the Blackfriars indoors. It's been estimated that about 15,000 people every week went to the theatre out of a London population of 200,000. It's quite extraordinarily popular. Plays were often performed in the afternoons between two and six when business was quiet and it was possible to slip away and watch a play. The audiences ranged across the social scale. Thomas Decker said that Carmen and Tinkers felt as able to comment on plays as much as the most learned critics. Admission was usually a penny for standing, an extra penny to sit in the galleries, and a third penny to sit in one of the lords or gentlemen's rooms. According to an Italian, Antonio Galli, the yard where the groundlings stood was an infamous place in which no good citizen or gentleman would show his face. I think he was exaggerating because in 1613 the Venetian ambassador stood among the groundlings at the Curtain Theatre. 
Theatrical performances were um, normally preceded by an hour-long concert, and all of Shakespeare's plays, except the Comedy of Errors, contain music. Some of his songs, such as Four Fathom Five, or It Was a Lover and His Last from Twelfth Night, are famous. In 1598, the Admiral's men, the company of actors, employed at least eight musicians and owned three trumpets, one drum, one treble viol, one bass viol, one pandor, which is a large mandolin, one sackbut, three timbrels, and some bells. The music in St. Paul's was justly famous, while the city waits performed at the Royal Exchange on Sundays. There were a large number of street musicians. In 1579, Stephen Gosson, a poet and dramatist, complained that London is so full of unprofitable pipers and fiddlers that a man can no sooner enter a tavern that two or three of them hang at his heels to give him a dance before he departs. Apart from music, there was a whole range of other activities to entertain Londoners. Fencing was very popular. If you watch it on the Olympics, I think it's tedious. And performances were put on in large pubs, such as the Belle Sauvage in Ludgate Hill, and also at the Curtain Theatre. Sports were popular. Football was played in the streets, and Shakespeare mentions it in the Comedy of Errors. Archery, in theory, even in the 16th century, archery practice was compulsory for able-bodied men. But since guns had taken over from bows in warfare, the practice was in decline. John Stowe said, What should I speak of this ancient daily exercise in the longbow by citizens of this city, now almost cleanly left off and forsaken? Gambling, too, was hugely popular. Many noblemen had bowling greens, and there were also indoor bowling alleys. These were very closely associated with gambling, and there were professional cheats who would lure innocent people to bet on rigged games of bowls. John Stowe complained that now of late so many bowling alleys and other houses for unlawful gaming have been raised in other parts of the city and its suburbs. Aristocrats also like to bet on real tennis and on foot races. Long races of 15 to 20 miles would be arranged between picked servants and large sums would be gambled. Dice, cards, chess, tables, that's backgammon, dames, that's drafts, billiards and fox and geese were also very popular. Queen Elizabeth liked to gamble on cards, and in 1596, Lord North recorded that he'd lost £32 playing cards with the Queen. This wasn't a bad thing, since he was appointed treasurer of the royal household in the same year. Nine Men's Morris was very popular and had been played by monks. You can see boards carved in the chorister seats in some cathedrals. Also, an outdoor version was played with giant outdoor boards cut into village greens. This is, as today, some people spent rather more time in sports and pleasures than was wise. In Twelfth Night, Sir Andrew Aguecheek regretted his knowledge of languages and said, I would have bestowed that time in the tongues that I have in fencing, dancing and bear-baiting. But London was increasingly coming under the influence of the Puritans, and the city authorities tended to disapprove of much popular entertainment partly because the theatres were sometimes associated with prostitution and vice, and also because of the noise and traffic they created. The um, setting at the Blackfriars Theatre caused a huge row because of the traffic congestion, and, and that was the most fashionable area of London, and they didn't like it. The authorities also disliked bear-baiting, and some Puritans even disliked football. Philip Stubbs, the Puritan writer, said, I protest to you, it may rather be called a friendly kind of fight than a play or recreation, a bloody and murdering practice than a fellow league sport or pastime, 
For does not everyone lie in wait for his adversary, seeking to overthrow him, and to pick him on his nose, so that sometimes their legs are broken, sometimes their arms, sometimes one point thrust out of joint, sometimes another, sometimes their noses gush with blood. But both Queen Elizabeth and King James were keen on the theatre and enjoyed seeing plays performed at court and at Christmas. And James and his family were patient of theatre companies. So as a result, the theatres pros prospered, although a number of playwrights and actors did spend several period, brief periods in prison for putting on plays which caused offence to the government. Shakespeare managed to avoid this fate. So Shakespeare lived in... He started off in the parish of St. Helen's Bishopsgate. He lived in Shoreditch, which is a theatrical area. And then he moves later on down this area, where, where theatres are. And then later on he moves to Longford, West Point, which is in Park Street, St. Helen's Park Street. So he moves about. He doesn't own a property in London until about 1613 when he buys a gatehouse at, at Blackfriars, but he, he lives in rent, rented property all, all this time. So what's left? Well, I told you about the three, four major tourist sites of London, but of course the only one that survives is, is the Tower, St Paul's, London Bridge and the Royal Exchange are all gone. And it's just worth thinking about what happened before I described him as a writing building. Um, there have been a number of destructions. The most been Victorian, well, developed ever since Shakespeare's time, particularly in the Victorian period, when they were demolishing very fine Tudor buildings. And there's been a couple of IRA bombs which did some terrible damage to historic buildings. And of course, modern development's got been rather better controlled. And also there's the bombing in, in the Second World War. So a lot, a lot has been destroyed. But it's surprising if you look around how much is left. And I'll just briefly describe what, what's left here. The, um, the first thing is the Charter House. This is in the northeast corner of London in the Smithfield area. This was the home of the Duke of Norfolk and the Earl of Suffolk, who sold it in 1611, where it became a school, which was Charter House School, but also a, um, a sort of arms house for elderly gentlemen. It, the school's long moved away, but there are still a, a group of about 30 elderly gentlemen living there. This is part of St. Bartholomew's St. Bartholomew's, the great church. It's, it's an extraordinary building. It was part of the old prior, the church, the priory of St. Bartholomew. But in fact, it's the choir and the south transept of the old church. So you get a very peculiar sense when you're in there that somehow the church has been built the wrong way around. It's quite, it's quite strange. But it's an absolutely stunning building. And this is the um, Bolton's window from St. Bartholomew's church. And just around the corner from there, is this house in Cloth Fair. Although it's sadly been done up and rather kind of looks very modern, in fact, it's the oldest building in London. And Cloth Fair was one of those streets, the, sorry, the oldest house in London. 
and Crosshair was one of those streets which fortunately survives the, the Great Fire. So if we go further south from there, we have St Ethelburg, as this is in Bishopgate. Unfortunately, St Ethelburg was, was destroyed by an IRA bomb. It's been rebuilt. The outside was rebuilt according to the, the, the design of the original church, so it looks very much like the original church. The inside's pretty horrid, I would say, but the outside is well worth, well worth a look. And further down is St. Helen's Bishop's Gate. This is um, one of the great surviving churches of, of the fire, and it's a very interesting church. You can see it's that was licensed to Hong. There's a nunnery associated with the church, and there's, the church was divided by a sort of partition, and half of it was used by the nuns, and half of it was used by the congregation, the local parishioners. In 1538, when the nunnery was abolished, the partition was taken down. So you get this very large open church, which, which you can see today. So we go past St. Helens, and turn left. And here we can see St. Andrew's Undershaft. The, um, the tower is original, and most of the church is original. Again, it suffered from an IRA bomb, and all the medieval glass was destroyed, but it's, it's a very fine church. And there's a wonderful statue of John Stowe, who we, we've been hearing from this afternoon. And he has this pill of hen in his pocket. And every three years, the Lord Mayor goes along in great state and replaces the, the quill pen. And just along from there, and you can just see the reflection in the glass of pre-church and Catherine's Creed. That's actually slightly later than Shakespeare. It's 1630s, but it has a rose stained glass window, which is supposed to be is a copy of the stained glass window that was in Old St. Paul's before it was burnt down. So that's the northeast corner. This is just along from Cree Church. This is Oldgate Park. That's the 18th century, but it's pretty much on the site of the pump, which would have been known to Shakespeare and his contemporaries. And it's traditionally the division between the city of London and the East End, or as we nowadays say, between the realms of the merchant bank and the hipster. This is there's not a huge lot surprise in Southwark because in later in the, after the Great Fire of London, later in the 17th century, there was a huge fire which destroyed most of, of Southwark. Since Saviour's church, that was now the sort of cathedral, survives and. This is this crossbones churchyard, an unconsecrated church graveyard for prostitutes, um, which has recently been restored by the, the local community. There's been a great community action to prevent development on this site, and there's all sorts of things going on there. It's well worth going to have a look. It's very much irregular times, but it is an extraordinary survival from things Shakespeare would have known. This is the famous gate of Lincoln's Inn. Quite a lot of Lincoln's Inn is Tudor or Tudor This gate is on Chantry Road, and it's believed that when Ben Johnson was an apprentice bricklayer, he worked on building this gate. And then there are a couple of surviving Tudor shops. Again, this is the west, west side of the city. This is the old curiosity shop which was immortalised by Charles Dickens, but in fact is a Tudor building. 
And here, of course, is the fantastic staple in just by Chantry Lane Station. Again, a genuine Tudor building. So, that's pretty much all I've got to say. That was Shakespeare's London. It was a place where medieval punishment and disease were still rife, where wooden buildings led to terrible fires, and where citizens enjoyed hideously cruel sports. And believe me, I haven't told you half of it. It was also a place which had all the problems, traffic, air pollution and crime of a modern city. But it also had some of the benefits of a modern city, street lighting of a sort, a kind of police force, a supply of clean and drinkable water, clean streets, a zoo, and on the river at least, a form of public transport. It too had all the pleasures of a modern city, theatres, inns, sports and shopping. What it did have, and what I hoped I've managed to convey to you, is a tremendous vigour. The streets were full of roguish entertainers. There were a lot of street musicians, and theatres were being built and thriving. There were also a lot of writers keen to describe and comment on the life of the city in which they lived. And it was in this vibrant atmosphere that Shakespeare thrived. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.